Blog Talk Radio. for that introduction. And I want to make sure that everybody is aware of what we have coming for the rest of the show. We have, of course, Jenny Maloff comes at uh, 8.30, the bottom of next hour, and she'll be talking about the uh, incredibly bad behavior of Attorney General William, very low bar. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, we also have, do, do we have an update from Maggie Herchala with the we do. suit? We do indeed. Mm-hmm. She's amazing. Uh, Juana Guzman of Racies, Texas, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, discussing work on asylum seekers and related Texas border issues. Uh, and kind of going in this, in this general theme, Carlos, uh, one of the anti-GEO activists, appeared to face charges for their peaceful protest outside of GEO, a for-profit prison corporation. For their peaceful protest, um, they're facing more charges and than any of the armed Second Amendment enthusiasts who stormed the Virginia legislature. So, packed show. And I wanted to start out my segment by uh, letting everyone know that I did a PNN Extra this week. I think it was, it might have been Tuesday or Wednesday, but it was after the New Hampshire primaries. And you can find that in the show archives. Uh, it was it was fairly short. It was about an hour, but I went over some uh, some stories, some points of interest that had to do with 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 New Hampshire, and then looking forward to Nevada. And just a heads up, Nevada is their caucuses will happen on February 22. And right now there's early caucusing, which nobody really knows how that's supposed to work because a caucus is a um, is a participatory kind of thing. And when you early caucus, it's kind of like casting a vote. It, it, point being, expect some uh, uh, messes to come out of Nevada. Uh, there is there's the same situation that we had in Iowa with, uh, they were going to use the shadow app uh, by uh, by the company acronym and after everything 
went south in, in Iowa, they said, okay, we're not going to use the Shadow app. We're going to do something else. Then they created this iPad solution, and they wanted to make sure that everyone called it uh, a tool rather than an app. And this, um, this didn't work out so well because everyone is, is saying uh, this presents all of the same problems that we had with the Shadow app. It is still a piece of technology that has a um, – where we can't see what's going on in the background. We don't know who's, who's controlling us, da 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 So now they're saying what we're going to do is use uh, <clears throat> Google Forms, essentially the Google Docs, and uh, put all of our information into these completely <laughs> insecure Google Docs to hopefully uh, um, get a – uh, account out of the uh, Nevada caucuses. I want to give you a sense of where everything is in Nevada. We just got a um, we just got some polling out of Nevada for the first time since early January. And pulling that up right now, that's South Carolina, Nevada. In Nevada, we've got 538 doing a forecast average. Now, 538 is doing some interesting stuff with their modeling and they're taking in, in we talked about this last week they're taking into account some subjective measures they're trying to quantify the the, the qualitative aspects of um of the uh, um of polling and what 538 says is that sanders is sitting at 38 percent uh and biden is behind at 21 percent so for those who are, who are math uh, uh, handicapped like I am, uh, that is 17, that's almost 20 points ahead. That's 17 points ahead. That's an incredible um, uh, uh, leap right there. Now, after Biden, there's Buttigieg at 17% and Warren at 12% with Klobuchar and Steyer both keeping down around 6%. Remember that it takes 15% support to remain viable in these races. And in a caucus, you are going to have a, a, a first run and a second run. So people who are supporting candidates that are lower down on the, on the uh, uh, support, they will have a chance to, to switch and go to another candidate. So where you see uh, Buttigieg, Warren, Klobuchar, Steyer, if any of these folks do not make 15%, there will be the opportunity to, um, to huddle together to make 15%. And that's what makes a caucus different than a primary. There's, there's a, um, it's just different in nature. So, so be looking for that. Already we've got a lot of, of people heading out to Nevada to, to knock doors. We are at the 16th, so we're within 16, 4, 20. It's within a week that, that we'll see the next uh, um, race decided in this primary. Very interesting stuff there. Also, <clears throat> there's been some, there's been some, what I would call, it, it, there's been some news on the Florida front with regard to the presidential primary. And what I've got here is a story for you from the Miami Herald. And this story is 
um, talking about how the legislative delegation from South Florida, uh, namely Donna Shalala, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and Debbie Merkazel Powell, and I know I'm, I'm mangling that name, uh, but, but these three uh, uh, members of Congress are uh, poo-pooing the idea of, um, of unity. And so in this, in this uh, uh, particular Miami Herald story, the reporter goes to these, to these uh, members of Congress and says, hey, look, I know that unity is a big theme in the Democratic primary right now, and, right, and, and it seems that at the moment Bernie Sanders is taking the lead. And so I was wondering, as a reporter, I was wondering if that unity uh, carries over to Bernie Sanders. And here are some of their responses. We have Donna Shalala saying, quote, he's not going to be the nominee. Uh, that's a hypothetical question, and since I don't think he's going to be the nominee, I don't have to answer that question. Uh, Representative Debbie Merkazel Powell said, uh, how many delegates has he won? I'm seriously considering endorsing another candidate, and that's my answer to you. Then we have Debbie Wasserman Schultz in this article who says, quote, we're a long way from who is going to be our nominee, and so that speculation is not really helpful at all. And I think what's interesting about this um, these uh, collection of quotes in, in this article is that the, the question posed to them is, does unity run both ways? And the answer that we received from all three was very, uh, very uh, conforming. All three answers had about the same uh, tenor, I would say. And they all seemed to, to object to it on the grounds that, that, that that's not going to happen. It's almost like someone putting their, their fingers in their ears and going, ah, I, I, I can't hear you. Now, there's, the, the, the article goes on, and it says that six of Florida's 13 Democrats have made a 2020 presidential endorsement, four for Biden and two for Bloomberg. And that made me kind of go back up in, in, in the story to where um, Debbie Powell said, how many delegates has he won? Well, with regard to these endorsements, Bloomberg hasn't won any delegates because he hasn't run in any states yet. And, um, and Biden is, is, is in big trouble, which is why Bloomberg is, is coming in. So already, you know, where, whereas before, you know, we, we have the situation with, uh, you know, unity for me and not for thee. And when confronted with that, we have this culture of conformity where, uh, where our members of Congress, at least in South Florida, are um, all in for anybody but Bernie, uh, or you might say that they are hashtag never Bernie types, uh, which we already knew of Debbie Wasserman Schultz. She went to some, some links in the last election to make that clear. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, this is going to be something to watch. It, we've got, in Bloomberg, I think, we have a, uh, and by the way, Bloomberg is uh, polling in Florida now at the head of the pack. He is, uh, he is running away with Florida, and that's basically because 
Florida hasn't, um, we're really not in the presidential game the way we were in the past. There's, there's um, a lot going on with regard to Central, North, and South Florida. The three parts of the state are so very different and campaigns have to deal with three different kinds of leadership from the three different areas of the state. And, uh, and uh, for whatever reason, there is, um, there is not much appetite for, uh, for campaigns that aren't establishment campaigns to try and get a toehold here. Now, Florida is, at this point, we are how far away from our primary? It's going to be March, March the 3rd, no, that's Super Tuesday. Um, I don't see Florida on our list. I thought it was March 3rd. Oh, no. We're all the way down at March 17th. We're almost at the very end of the primary season. Uh, this primary season is majorly front-loaded. We have uh, the lion's share of delegates are going to be awarded on March 3rd, on Super Tuesday. And by the time we get down to March 17th, it's going to be all over but the shouting. So, you know, that that's probably a reason why you're, you're also why you're not seeing very much movement down here in Florida in terms of campaigns putting people on the ground. Um, Bloomberg, though, I think there are some similarities for, for Floridians. There's some similarities with Bloomberg and Charlie Crist. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg is a very recent Republican. Uh, I, I, I like to say that he just changed his party affiliation like five minutes ago, uh, pretty much coinciding with Donald Trump taking office. And uh, his policies as a three-term mayor of New York City were exceedingly uh, uh, reactionary and exceedingly, uh, um, I think, I think you could actually say racist. He is known for stop and frisk, and he is known for uh, uh, wanting to rebrand New York City as a luxury good rather than a place that welcomes everyone. And when he, uh, what Bloomberg means about like a luxury good is that you know it's it's not for everybody. Really, it's it's for. Uh, people who have money, and the people who have money, uh, if you look at the way that Bloomberg talks about stop and frisk and the way that he talks about uh, the, the voters when he was the mayor of um, New York City, he, uh, you can tell that he has some disdain for people of color. Well, I am really um, uh, uh, soft-pedaling that. It's, uh, Bloomberg has, has some real problems. I think with, with regards to race, and it's not just race, but we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, this week and, and on next Sunday's program as we uh, look forward to Nevada. Um, with regard to Charlie Crist, though, so when Charlie Crist was put up as the, uh, uh, in the governor's race as a newly minted Democrat. He had been a Republican his whole life and 
the Democratic Party, people who are who are activists within the party, had actively run against him in years past. You know, they had they had knocked doors, they had made phone calls, they had volunteered, they had put their 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 uh, bodies out there and their time and their energy and their money to make sure that Charlie Crist was not in office as a Republican. And then we were whipsawed and all of a sudden he's a Democrat and showed up at the, uh, the Democratic National Convention next to Bill Clinton and, and, you know, was welcomed into the party by the party elites and so on and so forth. And we saw a, a, a support for him in that governor's race was a mild wide a mile wide and an inch deep at a time when Rick Scott had this kind of support that was very deep. It was rooted in Tea Party Republicanism, which is highly ideological and highly uh, uh, people were passionate about it. Now, the people who wanted uh, Charlie Crist wanted Charlie Crist because he was better than uh, uh, Rick Scott. Uh, clearly, but nobody was really passionate about him. Nobody was. Nobody really cared. And you had a lot of party activists who were who were uh, uh, just confused. You know, they were like, just a few years ago, I was knocking doors to make sure that he wasn't in office, and so on and so forth. Uh, you got the same kind of situation cropping up with Michael Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg's policies and Michael Bloomberg as a politician has been a Republican for his whole life and his policies have reflected a kind of elite, uh, wealthy, uh, you know, very bank-centric, very, you know, very much for the 1% kind of ideology. And he's very ideological, by the way. Um, And so the argument argument for... um, for electing Michael Bloomberg or supporting Michael Bloomberg in the primary is, uh, I guess it runs something like this. We want our racist billionaire to go up against their racist billionaire. Um, And I think that that is a, uh, that's a recipe for disaster. But now here's the thing. Michael Bloomberg has all the money in the world. He He's uh, uh, <laughs> he's pretty much bought out all of the ad time in uh, all of the states that he's running in to the point where other candidates either can't find time to buy, those slots just aren't available anymore, or uh, people have been priced out of the market. Because what happens when, uh, when slots get bought up, then that pushes up the price of advertising. Uh, uh, Advertising runs on the same kind of uh, logic that um, airplane tickets run. You know, if it's if it's looking tight or a lot of people want to go someplace, the the uh, price of a seat on an airplane changes. It's not set. The same with with uh, advertising with airtime and and advertising. So Michael Bloomberg wants to run one of these campaigns that is a mile wide and an inch deep. His support is the support of money, his money, and his support is the support of party elites. He doesn't have uh, an army of of volunteers, but he does have an army of um, he does have an army of uh, consultants 
And something that he's done with his money is that he's bought off every consultant who isn't already a part of another campaign. He's paying consultants two times and three times the, the, the rate uh, other campaigns are, are paying. And, you know, some people, I, I, I can't blame them if they go to work for Michael Bloomberg, even if they, you know, they're, yeah, I can, actually. I think that that's really kind of a crappy thing to do. But, I mean, you know, you got to feed your families, whatever. Again, that's a, mild wide, a mile wide and an inch deep. Even if you're populating your campaign with consultants and, and denying those consultants to other campaigns, You've got consultants working on your campaign who aren't passionate about your campaign and are just getting a paycheck. And that, that kind of, of uh, work ethic works in corporate America. I would dare say that you know, there's a majority of people who work in corporate America who are like, ah, oh, it's just a job, you know, whatever. I, I, do, my, I do my time, I come home. Uh, that is fine if what you're doing is working marketing for a, a, a real estate uh, brokerage. That's absolutely fine. And that's healthy that you don't take your work home with you. If you are working on a presidential campaign and you're just punching the clock and getting that paycheck, that is not a healthy relationship to that campaign. That is not the kind of staff that you want to have staffed up. Uh, he's also doing some interesting things with regard to paying posters. So, so there's been a lot of advertising that has been shared that um, you know become an influencer for Bloomberg, and he'll pay you 150 bucks to um, you know say things nice about him on social media. So, you know, people are aware of this kind of thing, and they're not. I don't see a groundswell of support for or, or a lot of enthusiasm for Bloomberg outside of the party and the corporate media that is uh, banging the drum for him and banging the drum for, uh, let's win this thing with our racist billionaire. That'll be great. Um, and, you know, this, this relates to a, to a story that I shared earlier this week. The uh, always... A amazing Matt Stoller. He has a um, a Substack, and a Substack, if you're not aware, is a a way to um, uh, a way to serialize writing. So, like, if you're writing a book, you can serialize the chapters and have people support your work while you're um, while you're writing it essentially, or, you know, you can uh, do your stuff. Could I get, could I, where, could I get you to turn your mic down just a little bit? I'm getting Not a lot sure. of, thank you. Um, so, so Matt Stoller does this really good piece, Iowa caucuses, the blob and the democratic party cartel. And this came out on February 4, which is, it was a little bit old when I, when I shared it earlier this week. But, oh, my God, he makes some incredible points, and they are so salient with regard to what's going on with the Bloomberg campaign. Uh, the blob. What is the blob? The blob is a, uh, a term that was uh, 
uh, coined by a former Joe Biden staffer uh, who used the term to denote a network of lobbyists, lawyers, congressional staffers, foreign policy experts, podcasters, media figures, and pollsters who comprise the group think of Democrats. Uh, these people know each other, they marry each other, they take vacations together, they book each other on shows, they hire each other and work together on policies and campaigns. It's not a conspiracy, it's a community, all right? It's, uh, it's sociology, you know, when, when you are of the same uh, uh, network of people and you're in the same line of work and you have essentially the same socioeconomic background and you went to the same schools, you know, the most expensive ones, then it, and you vacation on Martha's Vineyard, you are going to uh, have an outlook about your politics and the way that you apply your politics in your craft, you know, whether you're a pollster or whether you're a, a, a podcaster or so on and so forth. And what's important to understand here is the idea of groupthink. Groupthink is not a good thing. You know, we keep talking about how we want unity and, and all. And uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did a really good job recently of, um, contrasting unity, the idea of unity, with the idea of solidarity. And what I was just saying about support that's a mile wide and an inch deep, that's what unity gets you. Solidarity gets you the kind of support that is, that is, is much deeper and much more durable and uh, tends to weather the storm, you could say. Now, the problem with groupthink, and I think we saw this in Iowa, and hopefully we won't see this too much in Nevada, but brace yourselves, kids, because I think it's coming. Um, groupthink leads to fiascos. It just does. Uh, if you've ever been part of a team where people are afraid to speak up, where, where, uh, where there will be sanctions if you uh, go against the opinions of the people in charge, you know, if you're not empowered to make decisions and you're not empowered to, to critique openly, then you've got the situation of groupthink. Uh, so what happens with regard to the party is that uh, the way that corporations get more and more concentrated and groupthink is found in corporations uh, these relationships in political campaigns and political parties as well tends to wear down the, co the competence of the political apparatus. So as the group think increases, the competence of the organization decreases. Uh, the night before the caucus, and this is Matt Stoller recounting what, what happened just 24 hours before the Iowa caucus fiasco. The uh, Iowa Democratic Party chair, who since stepped down, by the way, said, quote, these are probably the most prepared we've ever been as a party for these caucuses. We've run through a few different scenarios, but I can tell you we're ready. Well, <laughs> we know now that they were not ready. What they had was uh, some consultants, and party elites through the DNC who were assuring them that it was all going to be fine, that the acronym and the shadow app 
has their back and they and and nothing could possibly go wrong because these technocrats know exactly what they're doing and nobody needs to even bat an eyelash at this. Well, and that didn't work out so well. Uh, everything about the situation in Iowa screams bad management um, and bad management is one consequence, one consequence of extreme deference to power. It's impossible to assess real problems if you can't offer real criticism, and you can't offer real criticism if the person in charge of some vital process is the child of a donor or a friend of a powerful person in the cartel. And so he, he, he uh, talks about the party with regards to it being a, a, a monopoly and a cartel. And just so you know, Matt Stellar's substack is uh, his area of expertise is monopolies and monopoly power. And so this is very on brand. This is right up his alley. This is the kind of thing that he researches and writes about all the time. He doesn't all the time talk about the Democratic Party. He very rarely talks about the Democratic Party. But what he's done in this particular instance is use his modeling and applied it to the political process, and voila, here, here, you, here you go. Now, after Iowa, Tom Perez uh, poked his little head up and, and demanded a, a, a re-canvas, and then rescinded that demand, like immediately. Then he said that, that, the, that the DNC was going to step in and help count votes and so on and so forth. There was all of this like do si do this weird hokey pokey going on with, with Tom Perez. What was um, evident in all of that uh, um, do si doing and hokey pokeying was that Tom Perez was putting his thumbs on the scale for um, – essentially for any candidate but Bernie Sanders. You know, you could say that perhaps it was Pete Buttigieg, but maybe, you know, uh, it, it sure seemed that way. But uh, what, what, uh, um, I'm just going to share this, this, this one last thing. Uh, sure. So, so there were, there were calls for Tom Perez to, to step down and honestly, he, he shouldn't be in this position in the first place. It's a long story of how he became the DNC party or the party chair. But um, there's a story that was in The Intercept this week, and it was how uh, the progressive, the Congressional Progressive Caucus had a meeting with Tom Perez and demanded some answers with regard to Michael Bloomberg, and specifically Rashida Tlaib uh, asked Perez what procedures he had in place to monitor conflicts of interest for officials that he names to key DNC committees. What we found out is that uh, the, uh, Bloomberg has two paid surrogates on the DNC Rules Committee. The DNC had previously said the com committee mem members had no say over a recent decision to change the rules for qualifying Democratic debate, you know, that allowed Bloomberg to get in the debates and Craver uh, and, you know, uh, um, Elsie Gabbard and, you know, many other people were shut out of the debates, uh, but that they changed the rules for Bloomberg. Perez did not spell out any particular conflict of interest provision 
the DNC uses, but instead said that he had named Larry Cohen a supporter of Bernie Sanders to the committee, which is, to me, the weakest possible response that you could give to Rashida Tlaib. And I wouldn't want to be the person giving that information to Rashida Tlaib because she's kind of a badass. Um, there's, there's more in this article. It is very much worth looking up. This is Ryan Grimm, uh, February 12th in The Intercept. Really, uh, really interesting information. And again, I talked about this on my PNN Extra earlier this week. And I'm going to wrap up there so that you've you got some time for our... You, you should definitely do more of that particular story. I think it's very interesting because I'm, I'm afraid that the shenanigans and the thumb on the scales isn't over yet. That's no, it's just getting started. Well, thank you so much, Brooke. As always, top-notch stuff, uh, drilling right into the complex mess that is, shall we say, the national DNC. Thanks again. Mm, my pleasure. You too. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, here we go. Now it's going to be Maggie Herchawa, a lifelong conservationist, and right now victim of a slap suit. But she has transcended victimhood, and she is a warrior woman that we all need to be proud of. Here we go, Maggie Herchala. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome Maggie Herchala, a lifelong Floridian, lifelong conservationist, uh, a person who has done her level best to continue to make Florida a livable place, uh, not just for the little creatures, but for the bigger bipeds and uh, tripeds around. Um, Maggie, welcome. Uh, I've, I've got some questions, but more, most of all, I want you to tell your story. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, as, as we've talked in the past, uh, you're a lifelong flirting. Your love affair with Florida's wild lands started very early, didn't it? It did. I just uh, did an interview with some folks from Orvis, and it turned out of all the people they worked with on an Everglades documentary, they didn't have anyone who was old enough to have actually been in the Everglades in the 1940s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard some stories myself about that first, uh, the bridging of the glades with the Tamiami Trail. And I'm not that old. No. It's the 1920s. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it was when it was a dirt road down to where the park headquarters are now. Yeah. And uh, full of mosquitoes, and we got stuck in the mud and had to get out in the night and uh, push off. And uh, it was an interesting adventure for a seven-year-old. Yeah, yeah. I had something similar when my family first moved down in 67. We had gone out. We, we heard there was some campground west of Homestead. And we ended up driving into where the road ended, and there were tall grasses way over the head, and, and trying to turn around on a single lane road, we got stuck and had to climb out amidst a uh, soup of mosquitoes. I, I, I know that experience. Um, Maggie, you're a, you're a person who not only has cared about Florida's wildlands, but you actually took part in civic life for some time. You were a county commissioner. I was um, county commissioner for 20 years. 20 years. Um, that's, that's a special kind of dedication. Um, I know many people, regardless of how much they care, wouldn't sit through a meeting to save their life. And you must have sat through <laughs> tens of thousands of those things. <laughs> uh, that's actually one of my uh, soapbox things, Rick, because I 
think that we all need to be free to criticize our government, but if we get to the point that nobody will represent us anymore, because everybody who tries to gets destroyed by the other side, that's a way to lose democracy. And I cannot overemphasize that running for local office is the bravest, best thing you can do without getting shot at. Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's such a tremendously important point, especially today. Because so many people you talk to, intelligent, good-hearted people who care a lot about things, often will be heard to say, oh, I wouldn't run for office to save my life. I just There's just no way I would do that. And, and you're right. You know, people who think civic engagement is voting once every couple of months is, is not, that's not it. Uh, going down, participating, being part of the government, because it is we the people. And if it's not we the people, then it's we the corporations, and we all lose. That's true. And I tell people that, you know, first of all, you ought to run. And if you can't run, then you need to go help somebody run. And that doesn't mean just voting for them. It doesn't mean just giving them money, whether it's $10 or $100 or whatever you can give. It means organizing your friends, helping them out in the campaign, getting other people to do that. Uh, the special interests can buy that kind of support. The good guys can't. So if you want decent government, you have to make it happen. Oh, oh absolutely. And if we needed that in in clear focus, boy, that's in front of us every day these days, uh, where people are buying their way into public office, or you know, we've got competing billionaires running for office. Um, that's a far cry from the civic lessons I had <laughs> as a kid, and obviously yourself as well. Um, now, to, to catch people up, you uh, not only were engaged as a county commissioner for 20 years plus, uh, you have stayed active. You continue to to participate in environmental meetings, in coalition meetings, and uh, you you offered your colleagues, your former colleagues, and probably some that are newer, uh, your opinion on a particular development project, and that's where just uh, all hell broke loose, at least I'm sure, much more hell than you'd prefer to have had. Talk a little bit about how this, this slap suit started, would you? Uh, probably it started back in 2008 when, um, <clears throat> at just as the recession started, George Lindman Jr. bought a rock pit out in Martin County, and, or bought a piece of land he was going to build a rock pit on. And I pointed out that some of the sales pitches that his folks were making just didn't make sense. There was no way that digging some rock pits on 2,000 acres was going to save the Everglades or provide water for the Loxahatchee or save the St. Lucie Inlet. And at that point, uh, somebody involved in environmental issues said, you know, uh, Mr. Lindemann's given some money to us and he wants to save the Everglades. Could you sit down and have lunch with him? So I had lunch with him down in Miami and he told me that he didn't want to do anything bad and he would be sure that there was a complete uh, a review by the peer group from the Comprehensive Everglades Plan uh, and if that didn't happen, he'd just donate the property. Uh, they evidently then decided that they had shut me up and everything was fine and they proceeded to go forward. Never did the study that was promised. Uh, and uh, things were really quiet after the county endorsed it, uh, the water management district endorsed it because it was going to do all those wonderful things. Save the Everglades, save the St. Lucie Inlet, and so on.
And then, I guess it was September of 2012, there was a headline in the Palm Beach Post about how they really weren't going to save the world anymore. They were going to sell water to Palm Beach, to the city of Palm Beach, West Palm Beach, which was having a problem with drought. And I fired off an email to all of the commissioners uh, saying, wait a minute, here, here's a bunch of questions you need to be asking your staff about this. Because if they're selling water that's really coming from Lake Okeechobee, which we've already given away more water than we have, to West Palm Beach, they're not... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.